This episode is brought to you by Our Daily Bread Ministries, a global media organization that makes the life-changing wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to all. Visit whereyou'refrom.org for more information. That's where, Y-A, from, O-R-G. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, Cultural Engagement Manager at the Hendricks Center. And our topic today is preparing Christian teenagers for college. And I have one guest via Skype today. My guest is Jonathan Morrow. Jonathan is the Cultural Engagement Director at Impact 360, and he's an adjunct professor at Biola University as well. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be with you, Mikel. This is, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Well, it's pretty cool. We have uh, a couple different ways that we've connected together. Uh, tell us about your, your DTS connection, first of all. Yeah, you know, I, I, spent, I spent several years at DTS and studying there, had a great experience, even getting to take classes from Dr. Bach and everyone else. And, uh, but I spent two years serving with the Center for Christian Leadership there as a spiritual formation and leadership fellow and just had a wonderful experience um, at DTS on my way to finishing up at Talbot and everything else as God kind of tweaked some of those passions of mine to, to pursue uh, a master's in philosophy as well and some different things along the way, but loved our time at Dallas. Awesome. Well, tell us a little bit about what you're doing now at Impact 360. What's your role there and what's it like? Yeah, it's great. So I'm the director of cultural engagement, and so it means a couple of different things for Impact 360 Institute. We're just outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, so I oversee all of our summer experiences. So we have worldview and leadership and apologetics experiences for high school students, one and two week experiences, propel and immersion, and then I'm also I'm faculty for our nine month fellows experience, which is a gap year for 18 to 20 year olds, and so we teach them worldview and and vocation and and uh, you know, ethics and calling and, and everything else along the way, kind of helping them launch in the next season as they head into the college years. And so it's it's a blast. So I get to oversee a lot of our courses and digital stuff and some studies I'm sure we'll get into in a minute. So all those ways about how do we as Christians be a faithful ambassador to the Lord Jesus in our culture today, and how do we equip teenagers to really follow Jesus for a lifetime in, in the midst of that. Mm-hmm. So today you help Christians defend the faith. Um, but it was not always so. Uh, you didn't become a Christian uh, until you were a teenager, is that right? Yeah, I, w- I was actually 17. Um, I was, I would like to say, I was baptized in the Catholic Church and confirmed the Episcopal Church, but I had no idea what the gospel was until mm. uh, an acquaintance of mine who'd been praying for me. I'd made his top five most wanted list, and he was praying for me mm. and shared his faith with me during high school when I was a junior. And that was the, really the first time I heard and understood the gospel. And that just kind of changed everything for me and then kind of went into the college years. And that's where, for me, a lot of those challenges came. Is this real? Is this true? Is this reasonable? I remember I I even took a religious uh, like Bible as literature course. Hey, what could possibly go wrong with taking a Bible as literature course? You could study the Bible and get a class credit for it. And Hmm. a lot of challenges and and some of some of those questions over a lifetime were, were kind of the fruit of the book that I wrote called Questioning the Bible and My Passion for Defending the Scriptures. But yeah, so that was part of that journey of coming to Christ at 17 and then kind of growing, growing from there. Hmm. Well, you've also done some work with Barna 
uh, research group and taken a look at this generation, Generation Z, that's up and coming and uh, in college now and some of them heading into college. Um, we're finding a lot of people now who are more um, uh, easily... Um, there, it's easier for them to say that they're either religiously unaffiliated as one of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, right. um, or agnostic or atheist. How much of that are we seeing in Gen Z? Yeah, so one of the things that we're seeing and over the last, basically as a backup, we, you know, at Impact 360 Institute, we, um, we know the questions that we get from students and teenagers every day, Gen Z, that's the primary group we work with, but we wanted to see that as a national scale, and so we worked with the Barna Group and um, had a fabulous experience working with them, and so one of the insights from them around that question you asked was about 34% of Gen Z, you know, are, have no religious affiliation that N-O-N-E-S is, as you were talking about. And, and, and in particular, atheism has doubled as well. Because one of the things you're seeing, as I interact with students, and, and the research bore this out as well, is even 10 years ago, there was probably cultural and social pressure for people to say, well, I guess, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, right? Or broadly, I go to church. Now that's not the case. So if mm-hmm. someone doesn't have a reason to identify as a Christian, they don't. And mm-hmm. it's not like, hey, I, you know, I like apple pie and I like baseball and I'm from you know, whatever, sweet tea from the South. It, it, it's none, none of that. And so in many ways, you're seeing students um, more of a blank slate. Um, in fact, you know, one of, the, one of the surprising things when we looked at this study was only about 4% of Gen Z had a biblical worldview. When Barn has been tracking this for the last 20, 25 years, you know, boomers about 10%, and then, you know, Gen X about 7%, millennials about 6%, and then Gen Z about 4% of answering about 10 to 12 of those questions that puts them in a category of having a biblical worldview. And again, that's a minimal baseline. So this, so in many ways, Gen Z is very much a post-Christian um, blank slate in some ways. I mean, millennials would react against the church, and and many Gen, and Gen Z are like, why? What's what's the whole thing with the church? Like, what's this whole thing called Christianity you're talking about in the church? And it's a lot more like that than it is they had a bad experience that they're reacting against. Hmm. Hmm. What makes it difficult for people in this? Uh, well, first of all, what, what ages are we talking about here? Is there a, a definitive age cap? Yeah, sociology is always interesting on that, but the broad range is pretty much, you know, Gen Z, the, the tip of the spear, they're heading into college this year or maybe even last year, um, kind of that 1999-2015 range. So if you have a, a child under the age of 18, then congratulations, you have <laughs> Gen Z in, in the house in regards to that. And so there'll be a very large um, generation, about 69 million or so. Um, they'll be the most ethnically diverse generation in American history. That'll be that'll present some really wonderful opportunities for them and challenges as they navigate those conversations. And I think that's one of the things I'm most hopeful about is that they'll be able to have better gospel-centered conversations around a lot of things that, that our country has wrestled through, and, and some of that's even been more visible recently in the last few years. But that's just kind of a snapshot around, around Gen Z. Mm-hmm. What do you find working with these students makes it most difficult for them to actually have uh, respectful conversations about moral issues, about religious truth claims? Yeah, so one of the things that was interesting is whether it was the focus groups we did, because we did focus groups with the Barna Group, whether in, um, in the South or the West Coast, and we did some with Christians and, and those who were not religious or atheists. And in every situation, there was just confusion. I mean, it was the highest response rate um, of a Barna study where there's the response, I, I don't know, I don't know. It was, it, was almost, it was almost like they didn't know what to say on some of these categories. Hmm. And because there's so much, the world that they've inherited 
has really essentially told them, hey, real truth doesn't exist on questions of morality and spirituality. And so they don't want to be judgmental. Mm-hmm. They don't want to impose on anybody. And they've been raised as a, as a generation that's kind of been taught to believe that how I feel determines what's real. And that is kind of a default. And so even even with a group of Christians who, who they knew everybody in the room were Christians, this focus group, they almost relativized statements as soon as it came out of their mouth. It's like, but that's just, you know, my opinion. That's just just what I believe, right? Mm-hmm. And and so I think there's this lack of confidence. They don't want to offend. And then just general confusion, especially in the categories of moral and spiritual truth. Just one example, uh, statistically, you know, we were like, okay, let's find a baseline in our study. And, you know, lying is morally wrong. And only 34% of Gen Z could agree with that statement. That wasn't even the hard one. That was the mm-hmm. soft before we got to, you know, pornography or homosexual behavior or whatever it might be, that was, you know, more complex. And so just, you know, basically a fourth of them said that, you know, moral absolutes, there's no fixed uh, nature to it. It changes over time in a society. So again, they don't have this kind of core when it comes to moral and spiritual truth. And so they don't have really confidence or clarity to engage those conversations well at all. Mm-hmm. I think we're finding more and more that we have lost that uh, Judeo-Christian net, if you will, uh, where most people could just kind of assume that a lot of people would hold to uh, moral values that line up to, with the scriptures. And so kids are finding it more and more difficult nowadays to engage with their friends who see things differently than them. Um, whether they hold to objective truth, um, can I say that? I don't want to come across as offensive or judgmental. And so I think the work you're doing there at Impact 360 is really, really important um, to reach this this demographic. Now, yo, go ahead. No, yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think, and that's one of the things that's so important, and we can talk about maybe some some different ways we engage them, but we found that giving them clarity and confidence to actually make some of those truth claims and realize that just making a truth claim doesn't make you intolerant. Mm-hmm. So that's even just helping pull those pieces apart, defining what tolerance is, some of those kind of things, helping them see that. That's right, that they can actually be respectful to people that they disagree with, and uh, we don't have to pretend we all believe the same thing. That's right. clearly false, and uh, yeah. there's no need to pretend. You can just be real with someone and say, you know, I disagree with you on that, but still have a respectful conversation with them. Well, you had mentioned students who are walking away from the faith, kids who grew up in uh, the church, walking away during during college. I want to explore that a little bit. What are some of the reasons that you've found are the most uh, common reasons that people walk away from the Christian faith or step away from church uh, once they get to college? Yeah, for sure. So, so probably there's I've kind of put it in categories of about three different kinds of students who who walk away, and and one is the category I'll call the Christian relativist, in a way. They kind of raised in a Christian home, they're raised going to church, but they've also been raised in a culture where they relativize everything. Um, and so I kind of use this example, if, if any of your uh, listeners or viewers have ever been to the Waffle House, right? Um, I used to, I worked there for a summer, um, and you don't leave the Waffle House without taking a little bit of the Waffle House with you, right? I mean, it's kind of this shit, this, this battery goodness gets all over you, okay. and you smell like waffle for three days, right? And uh, and so in many ways, and I get to teach Christian students, private school, homeschool, public school, doesn't matter. Their default is is that relativism. And so when it happens with Christians— in many ways, they're raised, and so they're like, well, Christianity is true for me, but they put it in that category as they mm-hmm. get raised, and then it just becomes quieter in their life as they go because there's no conviction to it. And then when they leave the home, 
when they have pressure, um, they either wilt or they just kind of, yeah, maybe it was sentimental or, or something like that. And then the second kind of student who I engage or find is they disagree is they have questions and doubts about Christianity along the way, or there's tension points for them, and they try to express those things, but they learn pretty quick that you're not supposed to talk about doubts and tough questions in the church or the family, or we're all supposed to pretend, you know, that you know, everybody has, you know, this lockdown and no doubts ever. And then what they do is they learn not to ask those out loud, and they go underground, and then those come out later. They walk away much earlier, even though outwardly they look like they're present uh, longer. And then the third kind, I think, are those that go, you know, hey, this is exhausting to believe something I don't believe, and they'll just disengage more visibly and publicly along the way where they look— this is not true. I've not been good reasons for this. Relationships are strong. I mean, we'll talk about technology. Technology is huge for this generation mm-hmm. on multiple levels because they're constantly getting um, narrated to about reality in a way that if they don't have a counter voice to that, then they're going to go, well, that's, that seems reasonable. That seems plausible. And uh, or Christianity is not good and it's not true. You know, they're, they don't care about either one of those categories um, in some in some ways. And so, Students will disengage from those reasons. But a lot of times, um, you know, as I, as I talk to parents and different people on this, it's like, you know, we wish we could choose for our kids. Hmm. We can't, yeah, right? But what right. we can do is we can influence certain things along the way. And in many ways, I think we've got to move, and we'll talk more specifically about this, I'm sure. We've got to move categories of apologetics and defending the faith and giving some reasons out of the special category for those who need that sort of thing and fold it into a larger vision of discipleship uh, to the Lord Jesus, uh, one among many things we need to be doing, especially our spiritual formation and everything else. And so... Those are the kinds of students as I see them disengaged, but that's why I think it's so important uh, that we equip them uh, to to really walk well and actually know that there is truth and you can actually live that out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think just talking to high school students and doing youth ministry and even my own experience, that for Christian students, the college is really the time where many of them say, is this just my parents' tradition? Yeah. Is this just like a cultural thing? For me, it's like, are, am I a Christian just like I'm Filipino? Is, is that just a thing in my life? But, or is this really a real relationship I have with Jesus? And am I going to get into the car and go to church on my own, even if mom and dad aren't driving me, um, you know, not sitting in the back seat? And so I think this is really important to, to really understand uh, why students are, are taking a step away. Now, when I was in college, I wish I had a book like this which is a book that you wrote called Welcome to College, uh, A Christ Follower's Guide for the Journey. In here, you pack all kinds of really practical things about campus life and these kinds of apologetics, worldview issues um, as we respond to the culture, as we figure out what we believe as Christians and why we believe it. Tell us a little bit about how this book came to be, and it's in the second edition now, kind of what the updates were. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, as I shared, I came to Christ as a 17-year-old and went off to college at a large state school in Tennessee. And I seem to have every anti-Christian professor um, there. Um, you know, everything from the Bible endorses slavery to, you know, how can the Bible be trusted? It was copied and all those kind of things. And I was like, surely there's answers for this. Mm-hmm. And the more I investigated, there was. And But there was a lot of other things I didn't know about. So there was things like, okay, well, what does it look like to and what does dating look like? Well, like I was, there's a lot of things in my, if you think of a blank book of notebook of that transition from high school to college, 
there was a lot of blank pages, especially from a Christian perspective for me. And so I, I remember telling my wife, uh, Mandy, that I was like, hey, if I ever get a chance to write a book, the book that I want to write is everything I wish I would have known in the college years. Mm-hmm. And so that became Welcome to College, which was different. And I'm glad that publisher took a chance on it because it wasn't just kind of a real thin, and there's nothing wrong with those, just kind of encouraging, kind of inspirational kind of thing. But that stuff tends to evaporate real quick on a college campus. And so I was like, what if we had 40, 41 short little chapters and everything from how do, how do you respond to relativism, to the problem of evil and suffering, to how do you study, to what about sex and dating and everything in between. And so what do you do with doubt on a hard day? So even if they stuck it under their bed or a doorstop and they took it off to college with them, I mean, they could flip through and find something that would help them that day and give them further resources. So I try to pack as much as I can in there and then give them resources at the end of it um, so that if when they're done reading Welcome to College, they can read other resources that go deeper in all those areas. And so it was just one of those things that's, you know, students, they won't read a ton of things, but they'll read some. And if you can get them on to the next thing with that, they're either feeling pressure around or tension around or interest around, then that's what I kind of do is kind of whet their appetite. So that was why I wrote Welcome to College. And it's been fun to see um, people use it and parents use it with their kids and youth pastors give it away as gifts at churches. And I, I've heard from students that, you know, from Clemson to Oklahoma State to everyone else leading Bible studies at SCA. It's been so encouraging because there's discussion questions in the back. But the newest edition has, you know, I updated the chapters on sexuality and some of those things were even a bigger issues that, that students wonder about. It's not a matter of if, but when mm-hmm. someone's going to press you on some of those questions. Um, as well as updating some of the just recent um, conversations um, around some of the ethical questions or or different kind of things like that. So basically making it um, as accessible as possible for students. And again, for Gen Z, as they head into the college years that, you know, welcome to college, hopefully it'll be a great resource for them along the way. So it's been, it's been fun to, to get feedback on, on that. And I'm so glad it's been helpful to people. Yeah. Well, if you take a look at the students that you're working with right now and as they're entering into your program and then going off to college and those who have been through the program, what would you say are some of the top social challenges that we need to be preparing our Christian youth for, um, regardless of where they go to college? Yeah, so great question. So social challenges, um, a couple of categories. One, what I call the tyranny of tolerance has kind of descended on the college campus. And it's these are issues when it's not a matter of if, but when your student, your son or daughter will, will encounter these. And they're going to feel a lot of pressure to conform to those around them. And uh, because the new definition of tolerance is all ideas must be equally true and valid. And to dissent from that means you're being intolerant or bigoted or whatever. When in reality, true tolerance is giving the other people the right to be wrong, like they give us the right to be wrong. We treat them as, in our case, we treat them as image bearers with respect and dignity no matter where they're coming from. Um, And so, but one of the biggest ones is sexuality and gender. By by far, um, so in the in the Gen Z study that we did with the Barna Group and Impact 360, this one statistic alone, and there's lots of different ones, but 33% of Gen Z agree that that gender is based on feeling rather rather than biology. Mm-hmm. So that's a full third, and that happens so fast in this generation. That's part of that narrative, and so there's a lot of confusion, and then there's a lot of um, you know, kind of movement on the moral claim that somehow Christianity doesn't have a vision f- 
for sexuality. And the way that I would encourage talking to students about this is to put it in the broader narrative. So many times we dive into particulars too fast, like, hey, what about homosexuality or what about these things? Not that the Bible doesn't address those things, but in our world, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't register. So the way I usually talk about it is like, look, if God really does exist, and I think there's good reason that He does, and He created all there is, then He's got a reason or a design plan for the way things ought to be. And so a Christian, as we Christians, we believe that God does exist, and He has spoken, and He does have a good plan, a way things ought to be. And there's lots of ways that you can depart from that. And and in, in the category of sexuality, for example, you know, sex before marriage or outside of marriage or same-sex relationships or something like that. There's lots of pornography. There's lots of different ways to fall short and outside of God's good design. And But there's only one way to flourish according to God's good design. And that's what we want to say yes to um, that makes sense of everything else. But many times the conversation is, Hey, here's what we say no to. Christians are against people, and we we want to treat people with kindness and respect and dignity, and that's what we do. They're made in the image of God. We also don't have the authority to say things that that God has already clearly spoken on, and that's the tension that our students need. And so, um, when we we when we help them, so for example, on the topic of sexuality, three quick things. There's three different questions we need to make sure we're answering the right question in the right way. First question is, what does the Bible teach about homosexual behavior? That's a factual or understanding question. The second question is, how do I deal with those who struggle with sin in general, sexual sin in particular, and those who struggle with same-sex sin in, in particular as well? Well, that's a, that's a different kind of conversation. And then a third, as they're pursuing holiness or, or following Jesus or trying to do that. And then the third question is, well, is same-sex marriage good for society? That's a public policy type question. But sometimes Christians answer the wrong questions in the wrong order. Hmm. They give a Bible verse to what I do when I'm struggling, or they give a Bible verse to a culture that, hey, I don't agree with the Bible. What else do you have? You know, and so I think one of the things we need to do and that we've found to be helpful for students is give them some framework about what's the question that you're being asked right now mm-hmm. and in your class is, do you understand what the Bible teaches? Well, that's you know, that's a, that's a factual question. How do you engage people with the gospel and remind them of what's good news for them as they struggle with sin? That's a different kind of conversation. And then how do you engage the public, loving your neighbor, seeking the welfare of the city, seeking my neighbor's highest good, being salt and light kind of question? That's more of a public question. So even on that one, that's one of the main ones that we need to prepare uh, students for because, again, it's not a matter of if but when. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's not because Christians are making it the primary issue as much as our culture has. And so we need to be ready. This is our cultural moment, and God's not surprised by that. And we need to be faithful in the midst of that. We need to love and serve people well, but we also can't say things that God didn't say either. Yeah, I think we've, we've found for some people who don't even have a concept of sin, especially as we're talking about relativism and just, you know, true for you but not for me kind of a thing, that we've found that talking about the idea of dysfunction is helpful for some people to begin thinking in that kind of category and to say that yeah. much of the dysfunction in our world is arguably traceable to what God calls sin in the Bible. And then here's a different way to live, that there is another way to live in a way that God has set up to help humans flourish. And rather than just giving people, um, like you said, just a Bible verse to go along with something when they no longer, uh, many people don't see it as an authority, to help people to understand that it's not true because it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible because it's true. Yeah. This really is a better way to live. It is a better way. It's how God designed us to flourish is uh, by living according to his moral commands. And so this whole idea of uh, identity, 
tolerance, sexuality, we see this all the time. You're absolutely right. What about this idea um, of, of identity brought into the world of social media, mm-hmm. of online gaming, of technology? How do you see those things working together? Yeah, those are massively important. Um, every one of us has to answer that question, who am I really and what is my purpose? And we don't want the the culture and the people around us to frame those for us. We want to frame those ourselves. And so working with students, especially here at Impact 360, one of the things that I've seen is it's so important to help them see that they are not defined by how other people perceive them. And that's that's really important because in the world of, so, of social media and technology, they're constantly on their screens. I mean, our study found this. I mean, common sense media, I mean, eight, nine, ten hours a day. You know, just that's an amazing amount of shaping influence. Mm-hmm. And then students find themselves in this weird situation of one of competing for likes by the people that they want to be liked by. And so they're trying to find approval. And um, and then that's exhausting. And then there's online bullying, which is different than old school bullying, which was like you had to be physically present to be shoved in a locker, right? <laughs> Whereas yeah. now, they that follows you home. People include teenagers. They include each other on text messages just to harass each other and, right. and make fun of each other and leave people out and tag them in posts and, and lead them out. And so that bullying finds themselves into their into their bedroom at home, you know, and everything else. And so this digital world has created no space for them to really um, find freedom from a lot of that anxiety and depression and pressure. And so now more than ever, it's so important that we remind them the good news is like your gospel-centered identity is that it's who you are in Christ, that you are perfectly loved in Him, created in God's image. And because of that, you're now free to do these things, but other people don't define you. And that is a paradigm shift and now needed now more than ever in a world of kind of digital saturation where there's screens everywhere and at every turn and that social media pressure to, hey, I must perform for likes. And so they're they're just in a very challenging situation that, quite frankly, is new. That, mm-hmm. That's not something that, that you and I had to deal with growing up in many ways. All of our mistakes weren't out there on social media for yeah. everybody to see. Thankfully, they weren't there with cameras and everything else and all that stuff. So like, whoops. Um, but, you know, but that's their world. And so there's a there's a ton of pressure there. And I see where that's playing out um, with unprecedented depression, unprecedented uh, suicide rates and, and anxiety and everything else among this generation. So identity is core to helping them navigate that well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. What about areas of mental health 
um, people struggling with anxiety, with depression. Do you see that more in Gen Z now as they head into college? Yes. Um, yeah, unequivocally so. I think the studies are bearing that out. I think our experience is bearing that out. And I think one of the things that's always correlated, maybe not causing it, but it's always correlated, is the screens. That there's mm. there's a definite correlation between, you know, when the iPhone shows up and then the trend lines begin to increase in smartphones and everything else and their use of that because some of it's neurological in the sense of, you know, there's the there's the high, the dopamine hit of the notifications and the, everything else, and then there's always a crash. And then there's addictive addictive nature of that where you find yourself, you know, if you're going to find try to break free from an addictive behavior, you know, there's a, cru- a cue, a trigger, and a reward, right? And what do you have to do? You have to break out of the environment so therefore you don't have the cue, trigger, and reward. Problem is, you know, if, if you've got your phone, right, and, and but this is always with you, then the environment's mm-hmm. always with you. Mm-hmm. And if I think by any objective standard, the phone is an addictive substance. I mean, it's people are addicted to their phones. Comics Media found 50% of students, teenagers, self said, hey, I'm addicted to my smartphone. I'm, I'm addicted to this. And that's producing anxiety and all those kind of things. And so the cauldron of normal teenage insecurities amplified by technology and social media and constant screens and what that's doing, I think, is, has led to the rise of anxiety and depression uh, in this generation in ways we haven't, haven't seen to date. So many new things that we have to begin to deal with, uh, not only with technology, but the effects that are, that are new, that these, these things are being induced by um, technology use. What yep. about transitioning from the social um, challenges now to more intellectual challenges. You talked about some of these things in terms of uh, relativism. What about challenges to God, Jesus, and the Bible on college campuses? What, what are you seeing that we need to prepare students to be able to engage with? Yeah, so I, th- I think definitely a couple um, that are that stick out to me. One is it's underneath the surface, but it's basically how we know things. Mm-hmm. Um, and why I say that is there's an underlying what's called scientism, which assumes that all I can know is what the hard sciences tell me, or at least that's the best way to know something. Yeah. Now, most people would never never articulate it that way. They wouldn't use the word scientism, but the, but the smuggled-in assumption is that science is king, and what's interesting in our culture, until my feelings trump science. Because right now, that's the hierarchy. You've got moral and spiritual beliefs down here. You've got science. And then up here, you've got my feelings whenever these things don't fall in mm-hmm. the way that I want to. That's just how it typically plays out. And so what we need to help people see is get Christianity and religion back in the conversation of reality. And so or like earlier when we were talking about students disengaging from the faith, when I'll ask students, hey, why are you a Christian? If there's any other answer than some form of because I think it's actually true – then they're not going to be on a solid footing. If it's because I was raised in a Christian home or because I go to church or because my grandpa or because my friends or what, it's like those are all powerful, good influences. I'm not discounting any of that. But usually that plank, uh, that part of ownership comes when they go, no, this is actually true and real. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll come in and I'll speak to audiences sometimes and, and then the, the people invite me and get nervous for a minute because I'll ask everybody a question. I'm like, hey, how many think Christianity could be false? Raise your hand. And like nobody raised their hand. And mm-hmm. like, how many think Christianity could be true? And everybody raised their hand. And I'm like, how many false? True. And then it's like, okay. So if Christianity can't be false, then it can't be what either? It can't be true. And if it's neither true or false, then what is it? It's 
it's kind of this emotion or opinion. Now, I don't think Christianity is false. I actually think it's true, and I think there's really good reasons for it. But until we get Christianity back on the rational playing field and out of the category of Sunday morning for only two hours or with, when I put my faith hat on, then students are going to live in these two separate worlds. And, and, and this, the world for Christianity and religion gets really, really small as they get older, and the, the rest of the world gets really, really big. And what we need to do is help them go, here's why Christianity is true. We need to help them see, you know, truth exists and you can know it. There's good reasons to believe God exists, right? Beginnings require beginners. Design requires a designer. Moral laws require a moral lawgiver. We can talk about that. Mm-hmm. Like, which God? It's like, well, it turns out, and you're doing this great work on this in your studies as well. Well, it turns out there's a guy named Jesus of Nazareth who claimed to be the Son of God, the Son of Messiah, uh, the Messiah, the Son of Man. And he predicted his own resurrection, and, and there's historical evidence that he actually rose from the dead. You can mm-hmm. investigate that. So that narrows that down, and then you can talk about the authority of Scripture that it hasn't been corrupted. But those challenges, the big picture challenge is just getting Christianity back in the terms of rational discussion. Mm-hmm. Faith is not blind, and it's not this leap of, of kind of faith against reason. And then you get in the particulars of getting some big rocks in there first, like truth and the existence of God and who is Jesus and can the Bible be trusted. And then you can have better better cha- better conversations. But I think there's lots of challenges today. I mean, um, a lot of students don't know Bart Ehrman but they know the slogans and arguments related to his work that he's been working at undermining, you know, the scripture about misquoting Jesus or the Bible's been changed and they've mm-hmm. seen YouTube videos and all these kind of things. So lots of work has to be done, done there as well. But, but I'd say the biggest thing at, at first is getting Christianity back on the table as something that's actually true or false. And you can actually know that it's true or false. That's true. Very, very important. You have this kind of uh, immature Christian faith that a lot of students are walking in uh, to college with, and they're being challenged by these more mature, grown-up challenges to the Bible. And a lot of the uh, the kind of attract- attraction-based programming that we have, great as all that is to bring people into the, the youth group, um, oftentimes isn't giving them the space where they can ask some of these difficult questions. Tell us, uh, practically speaking now, for ministry leaders and pastors, uh, youth pastors who are listening to our broadcast or watching us, um, what are some creative ways that you've been able to help students think Christianly about these areas as they're preparing to go into college? Yeah, for sure. So some of the things we do here at Impact 360, and one of the things we want to be as an ally for churches and pastors and youth pastors and parents, is we want to come alongside the great work you guys are doing in your homes and in your churches, but provide them some kind of catalytic experiences. And so, for example, take our two-week immersion experience. One of the things that we do there is um, we, we talk about these things, which is we need good instruction. But then you also need experience and the opportunity to do these kind of things. And so we talk about Islam as a worldview, but then we actually take them to the largest mosque in Georgia and they mm. on a Friday when they are the minority there and they get to see everyone having prayers. And then we have the imam present to our students why Islam is true and they get to ask questions. And then we debrief all that with them. And it's amazing how theology comes alive when they've seen a respectful interaction, number one. But what they believe about Jesus and what we believe about Jesus are very different things. What they believe about the Quran and what we believe about the Bible are very different things. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, oh. And then we, we train them, hey, we're going to have some spiritual conversations like seven days from now. We're going to go on Georgia Tech's campus and get into conversations. And, and then they do. And, and then they come back, and they're so alive because they realize I've got 14, 15-year-olds who 
in talking to a senior in quantum mechanics at Georgia Tech, realized that this person has thought more about, that they've thought more about the question of God than the senior studying quantum mechanics at Georgia Tech has. And they're like, well, look, if I can have a conversation about my faith there, then I can have a conversation back home in my church, and this is real. And so it's experiential. We keep all of our experiences small enough so we can actually do these kinds of things because then this is what's challenging. And I think this will be a paradigm shift that will need to happen in our post-Christian culture as churches think about this. You can't mass produce training and equipping. Um, you can't do that with a thousand people in a room. You just can't. And so, um, but you can take smaller groups and give them experiences and coaching and mentoring and training and then kind of a test that, that make them rise to the occasion. And we found those things to be amazingly helpful and, and just ignite uh, students' faith. It's so fun to see. They're like, yes, I want to share my faith with my friends now because I actually can talk about this. This is actually real. This, mm-hmm. you know, I don't need to be embarrassed by that. But that's just some of the kind of things that we're, that we're doing. I mean, even today on our campus, our fellows, which is our, our gap year, um, we're training them in, in uh, you know, theology and tactics and different kind of things but some of our mormon friends are coming today to kind of share their testimony and then our students will interact with them and talk about why they believe what they believe and what's different and and what's amazing about this michaela and you know this is when you actually get off the book like just the text on a page into an actual real conversation then you're like it's this is either real or it's not yeah right yeah and I'm either going to go in this direction or either I'm going to have to say something. And like like five minutes from now, I'm actually going to have to talk about it. <laughs> right? And that, that makes a big difference because we, then we don't um, let students just kind of sit in the background when they want to get in. But then they actually do, and then they realize this is fun. Like I, like this is. There's good reasons why I believe this. This is, and this matters. Like these people don't know Jesus, and that breaks my heart when I see them prayers and these little kids going forward and pray. And I'm like, man. They need Jesus, right? So that's those are some of the kind of things we've got to do to help to give them training and information, but also opportunities to experience these things through worldview experiences. And that's one of the things we do here at Impact, Impact 360. That's awesome. Yeah, getting people outside the classroom, getting their hands in it, getting it to come out of their mouths, to, to really have experiences with people, with other people. It helps them to see other people not just as a Muslim, quote-unquote, like that's a whole category. But look, here's an actual person. He's Steve. It's Deborah, whoever it is. and. Right. I'm having a real relationship with this person right now. It's a real engagement, and God really loves this person. Um, and so how can we engage in a way that's respectful, in a way that can be you know, a good ambassador for Christ to them? Yeah, and he's going to actually use me in this process. Imagine that. You know, It's like, <laughs> how awesome is that? So and it's just light bulbs come on. So one of the most fun things we do is just, I just love getting to see students come alive when they actually get to see. It's like, I can actually talk to people about my faith and talk to them about Jesus, and this is real. This is mm-hmm. not fairy tales for grownups. Yeah, it's wonderful to see that when they have this kind of confidence that they can go out and, um, one, not have their faith shaken by hearing an objection for the first time because you've already prepared them for a lot of these things, Mm -hmm. um, where they can engage with courage and compassion as well and see people um, was made in the image of God and people who, who Jesus died for, really. Absolutely. Now, you've talked about things students need, and, and you've talked about these three R's that you say um, students really need. Tell us what those things are. Yeah, so over the years, um, just working with students, is like, what are those things that we can directly influence? And I began to just see more of a pattern. And so the three R's that I developed for this of worldview formation for students are, are reasons, relationships, and rhythms. Because as I said earlier, we can't choose for students as much as we want to. As a, as a dad of three, I would love to be able to choose for my kids, but I can't. 
So what are those things I can influence? And, 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 and how do I help them shape what they love and what they care about? Well, I can't choose what they love, but I can influence those things by helping them have reasons why Christianity is true. I can help them have wise relationships you know, Proverbs thirteen twenty says, "He who walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm." Mm-hmm. And you know, Second Timothy two twenty two, "Flee the evil desires of youth, but pursue faith, righteousness, and love alongside those who call on the Lord of a pure heart." Right? They need wise relationships because that you know we've all experienced this during the teenage years. Um, magically, parents like know nothing and friends know everything <laughs> and uh for the season now they most of them come back in their early 20s and they're like mom and dad really did know something <laughs> but but in, in that meantime they need other people speaking into their life and those relationships form them and influence them in, in ways that are profound and when you go to romantic relationships like a boyfriend or a girlfriend those are even more influential and cause a lot of worldview shifts because they want to be liked by that person right so they need wise relationships they need reasons why christianity is true but they also also need um, rhythms which helps form them. And this is, you know, sometimes people um, sometimes are critical of, of worldview and apologetics because I think it's only this rational mm-hmm. thing. Like it's just this intellectual disembodied sort of, you know, quantifiable thing. And that's not, that's this holistic thing where, where, where the rhythms, those practices form us. You know, the book of Hebrews talked about this, having our senses trained. And Paul says this in Philippians, we'll practice these things because that's how we grow and change. That's how our affections and desires and loves mm-hmm. change is by practicing not to earn God's love and favor. And this is always really crucial to make sure students understand God does not love you more when you read the Bible. He couldn't love you more than he already does. In Christ, right? But you will not grow outside of reading Scripture and praying and participating and sharing your faith mm-hmm. and being in community with other believers on a regular basis because that's going to shape your worldview. Because if you're not practicing your worldview, then your worldview just kind of withers and goes away. And and for many students, what I see happen is they don't. They're not, there's some of them. It's like it's not. There wasn't this one question. And it was, you know, at some point Christianity ceased to do any meaningful work for me in this next season of life. It's like, if I only have a backpack to go hiking in, in Yosemite and I can only put what'll fit in that backpack, I'm only going to take stuff in there that I think will help me survive. And Christianity, if it's not been real and true and doing work for them, they'll just kind of set it aside as sentimental back when they were a kid and they sang the songs at camp and all that. But, you know, and so they need those formational things of rhythms, relationships, and reasons. And I think those things, as parents, as mom and dad, as youth pastors, pastors, educators, we can kind of build those kinds of things in to help them be formed in a way that they can have a lasting faith. And I think those three R's will make all the difference. Of course, by the by, the power of the Holy Spirit and by God's grace, assuming that and assuming that we're praying for them as we go. But those three R's are things that we can tangibly and practically do our best to, to, to invest in with the next generation yeah i like to say when it comes to discipleship you can't just think stuff you have to do stuff too yeah Um, it's not something you can actually even just do by yourself in a room that you have to be around uh, other people Uh, you need your brothers and sisters in the church Mm -hmm. of course you need the holy spirit who gives us that enablement to actually um, engage and uh, grow spiritually and develop our relationship with god what would you say to parents now who have those high school juniors seniors who are looking at moving away maybe for the first time being away from the family um what would you say to them what can they do to help prepare their child yeah a couple things and the first one's this is you can never start too early 
preparing your kids for the real world they're going to face. I remember uh, talking to David Kenneman, the president of the Barna Group at the beginning, and one of the questions that kind of came up as we were interacting around it was, is it possible that we are preparing uh, kids and students for a world that no longer exists? Mm. And what he meant by that, what we meant by that was, there's a world that is, and there's a world we wish it was. And sometimes in the church, in the home, we, pre- we, we, we prepare them for a world we wish it was rather than the world that it actually is. And so we don't introduce certain conversations as early as we might need to. But what happens is is the culture and social media is, is already narrating on those big questions of life. What our young people and our kids need to know is, is there a Christian narration of those events as well, narrating reality? Like, how do we think about that? And so the sooner we can do that, the better. They need reasons. They need to know what they believe, why they believe it, and and, and, and categories along the way. That's the first thing. The second thing is, is ask a lot of questions around meal times and dinner times, depending upon how, and bedtimes, depending on how young your kids are. Bedtime, kids are always ready to stall. Mm-hmm. So they're going to ask, God, did daddy, or daddy, <laughs> where did, where did God come from? You know, like, right. great question. I know this is bedtime, but let's, let's go. Let's, we might as well, let's go have the conversation. So they're a captive audience then. But when they come back from church, especially in middle school and high school, ask them what they learned and then kind of push back a little bit against, well, why would you believe a thing like that? And kind of see what they say. You know, just, well, would you, do you agree with that? Why or not? You know, kind of use, use some of those questions and don't resolve some of those tensions for them right away. The reason why is we've got to introduce some challenge to see if they're actually going to own things, not just pretend to say the right answers. Mm-hmm. So push back a little bit, and that's okay. You'd much rather have them doubting in your presence when they can ask you questions and other people who know stuff than never ask those things and then get in a situation where they are really blindsided by stuff that they'd never heard about all along. And then and, and in high school, if you're a parent and they're about to transition, maintain that relationship at all costs um before them you know i mean i think josh mcgowell's one the one who famously said you know uh, you know um rules without relationships lead to rebellion you know and i think i think there's a lot of truth to that because you can be right and distance your kids you can be not like being spiritual like being a jerk is not a spiritual gift being a know-it-all is not a good idea i mean Hmm. we we want to help our kids know why they believe what they believe, but we also want to love them and pursue their heart and ask them questions like, hey, has anybody hurt you today? Has anybody disappointed you? Has anybody broken a promise, especially a Christian? Because then that stuff gets in there and comes out sideways as well, too. So what do you wonder about? What do you think about? You know, the rational questions. And then media and social media and technology and movies, what are you watching these days? Hey, can we watch a show together on this? And let's talk about it, you know? And Because don't assume that they're going to naturally come to good biblical conclusions on their own, you're going to have to narrate them. And we can't outsource those things as wonderful as our youth pastors are and our churches are. They get them an hour a day or an hour a week at max, right? Or Mm -hmm. two hours a week. And so we've got to narrate some of those things along the way. And so take those moments. Don't assume that you're always going to have time later. It goes quick. Um, maintain those relationships, create safe space for doubt and questions for your kids and insecurity, share your own insecurities and where you've wondered about things. You're like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is a question I've wondered about and it's good for them to see mom or dad. And this is a big one. And then we can go to something else. Apologize to your kids when you mess up. Hmm. Like this is huge, especially dads. If you're watching this, um, you're going to mess up. But your kids, especially sons and daughters, need to hear you say, you know, their dad say, you know what, buddy, I'm sorry for 
be specific about what you did. Will you forgive me? Don't try to rationalize or justify. Just will you forgive me? They know we're not perfect, right? They just need to know that we're pursuing um, discipleship to Jesus too and the gospel and everything else. And so they need to hear when we blow it, when we lose our temper, when we've had a long day and we're impatient and that response had nothing to do with them and everything to do with us, that we can, um, you know, we can, we can own that too. And so that's part of the ways we create a real relationship with them. And then we also put those reasons in their rhythms and relationships along the way. Yeah, it's really coming alongside your own kids, um, being that that uh, spiritually mature influence in their life. Kids need dads, kids need moms, kids need those adult influences as well. You don't have to be the cool, you know, twenty yeah. something youth pastor guy. Um, you need to be their dad. You need to be their mom. Uh, be the parent, and then just to help kids know as well that college is not a big giant scary monster thing that you need to get over as a hurdle but it can be a wonderful time an incredibly fruitful time where you can deepen your relationship with god you can uh make your faith your own mm-hmm. you can find those answers for yourself you can share those answers with others and really connect with people engage with people who you would never have an opportunity to meet otherwise so it's a tremendous opportunity for them well yeah. thank you so much uh jonathan for being with us today we appreciate your time Absolutely. It's been great being with you and a big fan of Dallas Seminary and everything you guys are doing there. So thanks for, thanks for the great work and keep it up. You too. The book, once again, is Welcome to College by Jonathan Morrow. You can pick that up, give it to a high school student or parents of high school students or even kids who are already in college. And we thank you so much for being with us today and joining us here on the table. We hope you'll stay with us um, and be with us again next week on Tuesday here on the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.